Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Welcome to Red Rum Blonde. Imagine, for whatever reason, that you're in prison. Let's not worry about what got you there, just imagine. All you know is that prison is not the place for you. Now, imagine that the prosecutor that put you there comes to you and proposes a deal. Go undercover at a maximum security prison for the mentally ill and get a confession from a serial killer, and your 10-year sentence disappears. Now, it sounds like the plot for a movie, and honestly, at one point, it almost became one when Brad Pitt thought of optioning this true story for a film. This story will keep you on the edge of your seat. This week, I'll talk about James Keene and the undercover quest to catch a serial killer. Now, I'd never heard of this story until I saw a Dateline episode about James Keene's adventure. And to say I watch a lot of true crime TV is an understatement. So Dateline is on a lot. However, I admit I get bored sometimes with the two-hour episodes. And my son and I had it on one night just in the background while we were talking. And it wasn't long before I realized that we were both completely silent, which is rare, because we were riveted to the screen. Of course, I knew I had to do a podcast episode on this. So I got the majority of my info from that Dateline episode called Inside Man, and the book by James Keene and Hillel Levin, titled In With the Devil. 
Growing up, James Keene felt like he had a lot to live up to in his father, who everyone called Big Jim. Not only was he a cop for many years, he later became a fireman. I mean, think of what little boys dream of becoming when they grow up. And these are the two jobs that they want. Fireman and a cop. Big Jim once made the paper when he rushed into a burning building to save a little girl. He wasn't even on the job at the time. So this image stuck with his son. James grew up in Kankakee, Illinois with Big Jim, his mother Lynn, who ran a restaurant, and his younger brother Tim. The family looked great on the outside, but on the inside things weren't so rosy. James's parents fought a lot, and mostly about money. I think we can all understand that. I mean, not having enough money can be very stressful on a family. James was 11 when his parents divorced. Not having enough money really stuck with him. By the time he got to high school, he found a solution. That was selling drugs. James had this natural charisma that made him very likable and able to mix with any kind of crowd. Plus, he could easily defend himself having lots of practice in wrestling and martial arts. James was and still is a pretty big guy. I think more of Channing Tatum than Brad Pitt, though, for playing him in a movie. So at first, he started small, just dealing to kids in his school. But as things grew, he recruited his fellow football players and wrestling teammates to help him deal. And by the time he got to college, it had become a full-time job, which caused him to drop out. Now, James, or Jimmy as he was known, was dealing with bigger players than just students at this point. Two of his suppliers were a father and son with ties to the Chicago mob. And they are the ones that encouraged him to expand his drugs from just pot to cocaine. Eventually, his sales went into a million dollars a year, with his cut being around $400,000. Now, of course, a young man with a lot of money lives a very lavish lifestyle. There were fancy cars and lots of women. He was even invited to the set of The Color of Money when it filmed in Chicago, and that's where he hit it off with a young Tom Cruise. Martin Scorsese said he could be a Hollywood star. If only he heeded that advice. Now, aside from the extravagance, the money let Jimmy help his father out, too. He paid the mortgage on his father's house and got his belongings out of repossession. Big Jim didn't seem to want to know where the money came from. And his mother didn't either. This was until one fateful day in 1992 when he was busted with his brother, Tim. They'd been driving a van full of 150 pounds of pot when they were arrested, and his mother was furious at him for eliciting the help of his brother. Now, luckily, they were both able to take a plea deal but this did not scare James off from the drug world. His enterprise kept growing, which led to the attention of narcotics agents. And it all came to a head in November of 1996. As he was walking through his living room one night, he noticed that the doorknob started to jiggle. Next thing he knew, his house was stormed by agents with guns pointed at his head. Unbeknownst to him, the feds had gotten his girlfriend to flip on him, and she knew where everything incriminating was hidden in his house. That was when he was introduced to the man who would destroy his life, Assistant U.S. Attorney Larry Beaumont. 
Beaumont went in hard on these charges, pushing for a 20-year sentence. In July of 1997, he received his fate, a minimum of 120 months. Keene felt like his life was ruined. He said, I know I did something wrong, but not to ruin my whole life, 10 years will ruin my life. He heard his mother sobbing behind him in the courtroom. And when he turned to face his hero, Big Jim, he said his father just looked lost. When he came to visit James in the Ford County Jail, they both cried together like babies. His father felt like he failed him. So it was a huge surprise when Larry Beaumont stopped by to see him again. His lawyer had given him the heads up that it was something to do with a possible early release. But Keene was very skeptical. I mean, why would this man offer him any kind of a deal? This was the guy who put him away. With Beaumont was Ken Temples, an FBI agent. When they sat down at the table, James remembers Beaumont sliding a huge file folder across to him with a dramatic kind of flair. Still cuffed, James picked it up. Thinking this had something to do with drugs, he was perplexed when he saw pictures of a naked body of a dead girl. The file also contained police reports and a picture of a man with mutton-chop sideburns. Finally, Beaumont explained why they were there. The man's name was Larry Dwayne Hall, a man he had prosecuted for abducting and killing the girl in the picture, Jessica Roach. He explained that he thought Hall was responsible for many more killings. It had become almost impossible to convict him on that killing itself. The case had been overturned and the second appeal was pending. This guy might go free. Okay, but what does that have to do with me, he asked. Here was the deal. Beaumont wanted James to transfer to the facility holding Hall. This place was a maximum security penitentiary and a psychiatric hospital near Springfield, Missouri, where Hall was serving his life sentence. James would go undercover as another inmate, befriend Hall, and get a confession and or details of his other crimes. For that, Keene would get an early release. Still confused by this, Beaumont then went on to further explain that they wanted James because he could easily befriend anyone. They knew of his ability to mix with any crowd and his infectious charisma. But Jimmy didn't want anything to do with this. It wasn't until his lawyer told him that they could make everything, his sentence, his parole, even his fine disappear, that he agreed. They prepped him with what they wanted, a confession to a different crime than that of the girl that Larry Hall was convicted of killing and abducting. It was suspected that Hall had kidnapped a young girl from a college campus. They wanted the location of her body, and hopefully a confession. No body, no release. It was a daunting task to try to nab a suspected serial killer. I mean, Jimmy didn't know where to begin. He started with Jessica Roach and the arrest of Larry Hall. It was September of 1993 when 15-year-old Jessica Roach told her older sister that she was going for a ride on her bike. She was headed out to work on a float for the upcoming homecoming parade. And her bike was the perfect mode of transportation in this small Illinois town that was surrounded by cornfields. When her sister found Jessica's bike on the side of the road, she knew something was very wrong. 
And Jessica took very good care of this bike, and she would never leave it on the side of the road. So their dad called the police, who began an intensive search. Chief Investigator Gary Miller knew that this was not good. This girl was not a runaway. She was very close to her family, and she was excited about life. Together with County Sheriff Pat Harshorn, they investigated this disappearance. Since this was a well-loved girl without any enemies or even any ex-boyfriends, they were at a loss. So knowing they needed help, they went to the FBI to search their database of missing persons. And this is where they enlisted the help of Ken Temples of the FBI. Remember, he's the guy that showed up with Larry Beaumont. Sadly, it would be an Indiana farmer who would solve the mystery of her disappearance by finding Jessica's body six weeks later. He was shearing corn on a combine when he saw something that caught his eye. It was Jessica's badly decomposed body, a positive fingerprint match to a card that her mother had from first grade confirmed that it was Jessica. Now, they had to use this because she didn't even have any dental work. Her jaw had been broken, and the cause of death was thought to be strangulation. But they were lacking any kind of evidence. All they had to go on was this vague witness description of a van near the cornfields when Jessica went missing. But Gary Miller stayed very diligent in this investigation, despite the odds. After a year, he finally got somewhere. He found a police report of a man in a van who had harassed two 14-year-old girls riding their bikes in Georgetown, Illinois. One of the girls' fathers had driven them around town to try to spot the van when they were able to get its license plate number and report it. Upon further investigation of this same van, Miller found that it had been reported by other police departments for suspicious activity. And it was traced to Larry Hall, Wabash, which was three hours away. When Miller called the Wabash police, he spoke to Sergeant Jeff Whitmer, who actually knew Hall, having grew up with him. He told him Hall was actually this big Civil War reenactment guy who traveled to different sites. So going on a hunch, he then called the Parks Department. However, they did not recall a Civil War reenactment in Jessica's area at the time. But there had been a Revolutionary War one the weekend before her disappearance. After talking to Sergeant Whitmer again, he found out that Hall was suspected in the disappearance of another girl, 19-year-old Trisha Reitler, who had disappeared from her college campus in Marion near Wabash. Now, even though Whitmer didn't seriously suspect his old schoolmate, Miller felt very differently. To humor him, Whitmer facilitated a meeting between Larry Hall and Gary Miller. But when he got there, not only was he met by Hall, but he was met by a handful of other detectives. Miller was pressing Hall, asking if he'd ever been near where Jessica disappeared. But he wasn't getting anywhere until, oddly, one of the cops urged Larry to tell Miller about one of his dreams. Apparently, Hall dreamt of killing women, but insisted that these were just dreams. He couldn't remember much other than that he was doing something bad. When he showed Hall a picture of Jessica, Hall flinched. But, of course, flinching isn't a confession. Hall didn't give up anything else. So it was up to Miller to eventually find witnesses who recalled seeing a strange man dressed in Civil War gear at a Revolutionary War reenactment that finally nailed it. 
It was something that really stood out like a sore thumb. So he questioned Larry Hall again, this time pressing harder for the truth. And after some intense questioning, Hall admitted to abducting, raping, and killing Jessica Roach. Not only that, he said he killed a co-ed from Indiana Wesleyan University. Unfortunately, by the time the Indiana police got involved, Hall claimed once again that this was just a dream. He denied killing Jessica or Tricia. Larry Beaumont felt that the original confession was enough to prosecute, and he was right. It only took a jury three hours to convict him. But they still didn't have Tricia's body, and more than anything, her parents wanted some answers. Tricia disappeared in 1993 after walking to an off-campus market and never returning to her dorm. Larry Beaumont was convinced her case was connected to Jessica's, but he didn't have any evidence to prosecute Hall. So that's when he came up with the idea of getting an inside man to snare Hall. And he knew James Keene was savvy from dealing with him before. With his background in martial arts, he knew this guy could protect himself. He was the perfect man for the job. On August 3rd, 1998, Jimmy was taken to the prison by federal marshals. His cover was that he was a weapons runner whose harsh sentence of 40 years caused him to just lose it. His only contacts in the know were the prison psychiatrist and an FBI agent who would pose as his girlfriend on visits to the prison to get updates. I think her name was Linda Butkus. Other than that, he was on his own. And the deal was if he got into hot water or if he got what was needed, he had a hotline to call and that they would come get him out in 24 hours, guaranteed. So Jimmy's first interaction with Hall was in the mess hall at breakfast. He accidentally, on purpose, ran into the man, asking for directions to the library since he was new there. And there was some small talk here and there after that. Then Jimmy decided to try an angle. He told Hall that he'd seen him reading his local paper in the library. Jimmy told him that Kankakee was right on the border of Indiana. It was a way to make a connection with him. And oddly, it must have worked because Hall invited him to sit with him at breakfast. On the dateline, Keene explained that in prison, it's a big deal when you're invited to someone's table to eat. It's kind of like an acceptance. This was his end. But little did he realize that Larry Hall's breakfast crew were notoriously called the baby killers, and they were hated by the other inmates. And they were called this for a pretty good reason. One guy had murdered a family that lived to him next door with a chainsaw, and another guy was in for killing little girls. The next day at the library, they bonded over the psychiatric medicine that they both took. Hall seemed to like him. It had only been a few weeks, and he felt like he was getting somewhere with this guy. Maybe it wouldn't be as hard as he thought. And that's when his plan hit a snag. As he headed to lunch one day, Jimmy found his path blocked by two big, beefy guys. And they looked at him and said, the old man wants to talk to you. The old man was Vincent the Chin Giganti. He'd been part of the Genovese crime family back in New York City, and he became infamous in the 90s for walking around in a bathrobe and slippers. 
Apparently, this was a ploy to fake dementia to avoid prosecution. But he was a very powerful mob guy, someone to be greatly feared. James was more than nervous about being summoned to see him. The chin got close and asked, Why you hang around them baby killers? He told James that he was on dangerous ground sitting at their table because all the inmates hated them. It could get a knife in your back, he said. From that point on, he wanted Jimmy to sit at his table. So now he was entrenched in the Chin's crew. Every morning, after breakfast, he had to play bocce ball with the old man. Jimmy was stumped as to what to do next. He couldn't just tell this old mob guy that he wasn't going to sit with him and play bocce ball afterward. But the longer that he stayed hanging out with the Chin, the longer he was stuck in prison and freedom was farther away. So he hatched another plan. As breakfast ended one morning, he caught up with Larry and suggested that they hang out at the library. Larry agreed and actually suggested that they hang out in the TV room on Saturday night to watch America's Most Wanted. However, that plan didn't go as smooth since Larry didn't talk during the show. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jimmy would have to get in small conversation here and there. Now, most of the inmates watched two bigger televisions in a different area rather than the small one in the tiny room that Larry and the baby killers used. And the bigger areas were used mostly by black inmates who hung out together. Fortunately for Jimmy, one of those inmates wandered into their TV room one night. So he was this big guy who often got into a lot of trouble. He walked right up to the TV, turned it off, and then sat in a chair in front of it as if to defy anyone to turn it back on. So Jimmy knew that this was his opportunity to prove his loyalty to Larry. He got up and turned the TV back on. The inmate turned it back off and told him he'd better not touch it or they'd have a problem. And that's when Jimmy turned it back on. Right when this guy went to hit him, Jimmy took him down with four punches to the face. And he didn't start there. He started stomping the shit out of him until the guards pulled him off. His punishment was getting put into this place they called the hole. It was a special wing of the building for hard-to-manage prisoners. It consisted of a very small room with just a toilet and a metal slab for a bed. Now, most prisons have a place of punishment called the hole. We even had one in our high school, the detention that we called the hole. Luckily, after his hearing for the assault the next morning, the psychiatrist told him it wouldn't go on his jacket unless it happened again. And it paid off as far as getting on Hall's good side. 
After he got out the hole, the next time he watched America's Most Wanted with Larry and the Baby Killers, Larry invited him back to his cell. Despite being told Larry had an IQ of just 80, Jimmy found him to be smarter than he thought. During their various talks in Larry's cell, they discussed subjects from the Civil War to vintage cars. And he learned a lot about the man during their TV and cell time together. For one, he would shut down when it came to talk about religion. And he was also very conflicted when it came to women. When Jimmy brought up women, he said Larry acted more like a teenager than a grown man. It was evident to Keene that Hall had never had consensual sex with a woman. Women wouldn't even talk to him, he said. He told him, ever since I've been a young boy, girls have rejected me. I try to be nice to them, James, but they've always treated me like shit. Even though James was getting closer to Larry, it wasn't going fast enough. This time, he brought up Larry Hall's conviction in the case of Jessica Roach and the fact that the papers mentioned that he might be a serial killer. He told Larry he didn't care what he was in prison for, that he was his friend regardless. When he pressed for more info, Larry started the talk. As awful as it was to hear the details of Jessica's abduction and death, James had to play the role of the cool, supportive friend. He knew families were depending on him for details and that this was his road to the way out of prison. A few days later, he tried broaching the subject of Trisha Reitler and Larry's possible involvement. Surprisingly, he admitted to driving his van up to the co-ed that day. Apparently, he then tried to kiss Trisha, who fought him off. Fought him harder than anyone ever did, he said. And then the words Jimmy needed to hear. Larry admitted to killing her and burying her in the woods. But he was very vague about the location, only saying that it was somewhere near a river in Indiana. James decided to try again later. And that's when a discovery in the woodshop changed everything. Larry Hall spent a lot of time in the woodshop. As a model prisoner, he had access to places like that. And there were no guards around either. So Keen knew that this would be worth checking out, and his hunch was right. When he walked in, he noticed Hall standing over a map on a table, and it was marked with various lines and dots. And on the map, there were around 10 to 15 wooden statues that Hall had carved. When he asked what they were, Larry replied that they were falcons watching over the dead. Only getting a quick glance at the map, he saw that dots corresponded to states like Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin, states where girls had gone missing. So Jimmy knew this map was a record of where bodies might be buried. Victims of Larry Hall. However, Hall was reluctant to show Jimmy the map, and he quickly put it away before it could be examined. It didn't matter, though. This was all Jimmy needed. This was his ticket out. So immediately, he made a call to the emergency number given to him by his fake girlfriend and the FBI agent, Butkus. But he only got a voicemail to leave a message about the Falcons, the map, and Larry's confession. He thought of Trisha's parents and how they were finally going to find their daughter and be able to bury her after all these years. So high on the knowledge that he would soon be free, he walked right over to Larry Hall's cell. In 24 hours, he would be out of prison, 
and Jimmy decided to tell Larry what he really thought about him. He unloaded on the guy, saying that he faked their friendship and he was disgusted by Larry and the things that he had done. After letting it all out, he returned to his own cell to await his release. A doctor came with some guards early the next morning, and she admonished Keene for upsetting her patient, Larry Hall, so much by what he'd said to him. Hall was an emotional wreck, she said, and he was to blame. For giving Larry a piece of his mind, he got thrown back into the hall. Okay, no big deal, he thought. I'll still be released soon. But that didn't happen. The day passed, and then it went into night. And then night went into the next day. He started to think that maybe he had been double-crossed by the FBI. But what he didn't realize was when he left the message on the hotline's machine, no one got to it for a couple of weeks because the psychiatrist was on vacation. Larry Beaumont was concerned that his informant was lost. When the psychiatrist returned, he found James in the hole. In the two weeks that he'd been there, he'd grown a full beard and hadn't showered the entire time, and James was furious. The psychiatrist tried to explain that they didn't expect things to move so fast. I mean, he hadn't let them in on what was going on. Finally, guards came for him and took him to an administrative building. He finally knew he was going home. And the guards there were flabbergasted, having no idea that Keene was a secret informant. I mean, they thought this guy was in there for life. A van arrived with Agent Butkus inside, and she explained that by the time they got the message, Hall had gotten rid of the map. All that potential evidence was lost. Jimmy was kicking himself for going into Larry's cell and unloading on the guy. Now he tries not to dwell on it because he says it eats at him. They were so close to finding Trisha's body and maybe those of other missing girls. He said, without Trisha Reitler's body, I did not complete my mission. And I didn't know what Beaumont was going to do about that. Larry Beaumont was able to use James Keene as an important witness for future prosecution Larry Hall had given him crucial details that had never been heard before. To prove it, Keene even took a lie detector test, which he passed with flying colors. His sentence was reduced to time served, even though Trisha Reitler's body was never recovered. The information that he had gotten was enough. Not long after, the Seventh Circuit Court released their decisions on Larry Hall's second appeal. The guilty verdict was upheld. Hall would spend the rest of his life in prison, but only for the murder of Jessica Roach, not Trisha or any other missing girl. Girls like 16-year-old Wendy Felton, who went missing in 1987. She lived two miles from where Trisha Reitler was last seen, and she went missing on a road a lot like Jessica's. Her body was never found. When Hall was shown a picture of Wendy Felton by an investigator, he said, oh yeah, I remember her. She used to work in a restaurant. I was going in there to eat pretty frequently, and I bought her some jewelry, and then she befriended me, and I had to kill her. So even though these details don't match to Wendy, this detective felt that it was related to another killing of Halls. He said that these brief flashes of lucidity were similar to people with schizophrenia or dementia, and it was most certainly another victim of Halls. 
another person with possible knowledge of other victims might have been Hall's twin brother, Gary. He had many talks with Wabash Detective Ron Smith. He gave some info like the time Gary and Larry had picked up this girl and, quote, had their way with her in 1984. And another time, Larry had taken Gary's car. Gary's wife gave him hell for finding a woman's earring under the front seat, thinking that he was cheating. And Gary remembers when his brother brought the car back that he had scuff marks all over his face. Most telling was when Larry called and told his father to get some things out of storage. Gary remembers one thing being a map with marks on it that said DB all over it. DB meaning dead body. He watched as his dad burned the map. Gary also told a friend that Larry had killed 22 women. And every time they went to a reenactment together, he remembers Larry sneaking out of their tent at night, possibly to do his killing. So Larry Haas since admitted to other killings, most notably the murder of 21-year-old mother Michelle Dewey in 1991, as well as 14 other young women. Victims range from the states of California, Colorado, Wyoming, to Illinois. Gary Hall has promised now to work with detectives on anything that he might know. The best part of Jimmy Keene's release was reuniting with his hero, Big Jim. Since his release, the two men treasured each other's company. All that time apart had shown them how precious life was. Sadly, Big Jim passed away in 2004 from a heart attack at the age of 67. And it makes Keene wonder what would have happened if Larry Beaumont hadn't proposed this risky plan to him all those years ago. He would never have gotten the chance to hang out with his dad like he did. And for that, he is eternally grateful. That was the story of James King and the capture of Larry Hall. And it's one of the craziest stories I have ever heard. If you ever get the chance, check out Keene's book. It was really good. I was able to read it for free on an app called Scribd on a free trial. So it was definitely worth it. I wouldn't even have mind paying full price for it. I was just blown away by this whole story. I actually enjoyed the book more than the Dateline. But I mean, this whole story really does seem like a movie. I hope everyone is doing well during this quarantine. I know I've been very, very stressed and super depressed. So I'm still working, which is fortunate, but also scary about worrying about getting the virus. So, you know, for me, it's a double-edged sword. I'm thankful for work, even though my hours have been drastically cut since most people aren't working at all. So it's a struggle. I hope you're all doing okay. I can't do much to help, but if you send me a message with your address, I'll send you a sticker and a note. I appreciate everyone who listens so much, and I just want to show my appreciation in some kind of way. I know it's not much, but it is heartfelt. So you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, whatever, redrumblonde at gmail.com. And like everyone, I'm also very thankful for everybody else that's out there on the front lines. The bus drivers, cashiers, doctors, nurses, and whoever you may be, you know, please be safe. Thanks a lot for listening, guys, and catch you next week. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.